Welcome to a very special episode of Crashing the Party with Mark and Miriam. And we have a guest in our midst today, the one and only king of the New York subway system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mr. Yeah. Dion DiMucci is here with us. Yay! I'm still learning the subway system. What are you talking about? <laughs> it we, all, we all had trouble getting here today because. Yeah. Uh, good to be here. Nice to have you. It's good. So, I'm going to just ask you a question. It's not really a question, it's a statement, and see how far off I am. I always thought that your voice was kind of like the midpoint between Johnny Ray and Howlin' Wolf. <laughs> oh my God. That's, uh, how, how close am I? Well, that's a, that's a compliment either way, because uh, Johnny Ray was crazy good and howlin wolf was just so to me so special you know just uh, one of a kind both of them like i would say very distinctive voices and uh i, I never even thought of that close to it but uh my whole thing was uh i heard hank williams as a kid and uh i i've never been the same and then I heard Jimmy Reed groove, and uh, I guess I would define it as I always wanted to communicate like Hank Williams and dig into the lyric like he did. He almost he almost would bite the words off at the end, rip them off with yeah. his mouth. Yeah. You know, he just, and Jimmy Reed would groove. So I wanted to communicate like Hank Williams and groove like Jimmy Reed. Okay. But uh, that, Johnny that, Ray... That works too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Johnny Ray, I, I met him. I did the Ed Sullivan show with him. And he was, he was one of a kind. Believe me, he just... He poured himself into a lyric life, like his life depended on it. I mean, he just... Everything. Everything. Spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. That guy was just invested. <laughs> yeah, he used to, he used to get you know fall down on his knees and start crying and all oh, that crazy stuff. No, yeah. wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, just kidding, Dion. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know he uh, he was just uh, I th he died young, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, I didn't know. And and very unhappy, as, as I recall the story. Really well. Yeah. Some artists never, you know, they they never break through. You know, they're they're driven by a lot of angst and problems and brokenness, and they're like outcasts. And but they never, you know, somewhere along the line, if you don't work through that stuff, it'll kill you. Yeah. And you did see Howlin' Wolf, I'm sure. He scared me one day. I was right up the street here, the Brooklyn Fox. We're we're not far from it. 
as this uh, where we where we're talking right now. We're at crashing the party. Yeah, we're at crashing the party. <laughs> In parts unknown. <laughs> parts unknown is where. Oh, we're okay. We're we're not too far from where I met Howlin' Wolf. He was walking down the hallway at uh, in at the Brooklyn Fox, and he oh, wow. I was playing the blues in one of the. Uh, I, I guess he was visiting Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. We were doing a show, and uh, he heard me playing blues in in the dressing room and he, he looked in and he said, where'd you learn that? I thought he was going to kill me. <laughs> uh, you know. He was a, a considerably large fellow. Yeah, his feet were two feet long. Yeah. Like he, a real big guy. But he was, he was like, had a, had a very warm heart. And, you know, when I started telling him who I listened to and everything, he says, oh, okay. You know, he was like, I said, oh, I'm going to live. <laughs> I almost started stuttering, talking. Because he was, a, you know, to me, he looked six foot six with, you know. He was, yeah, he was massive. Absolutely yeah. massive. And, it, and his sound was massive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a natural compression in his voice that you know some people try to compress stuff to get the mid-range right in your face he had it naturally yeah what was that uh, like playing at the brooklyn fox like what happened over there <laughs> it was oh it was wild man it was it was just wild you know uh, s screaming teenagers in the street you know and uh the shows were were just uh exciting you know Rock and roll was in its infancy, you know. Uh, we'd come out, you, you'd do the wanderer, the place would come come down, you know, on you. It was like you had to rebuild the stage after Bo Diddley got off. You know? wow. It was like, yeah. it was just incredible to watch these guys from the wings, you know, to watch Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Little Richard with two drummers. And oh, man, it, it, I've never been the same. I'm still lit up from it. <laughs> Do you and, happen to remember who was in the band? Was it guys like Sam and the Man Taylor and Big Al Sears? And well, stuff when like we that? did the Apollo, I know for sure Sam the Man Taylor and King Curtis uh -huh. and Jerome Richardson and uh, and uh, who else? Ray Prysock and uh, there was a lot of guys, you know, that just were. Uh, Georgie All, there, there was all these, Buddy Lucas actually yeah. played oh, yeah. the yeah. horn on the Wanderer on the record. And uh, and Panama Francis was the drummer on that, right? Panama Francis, yeah, he was. And uh, Stick Sevens sometimes. Right. All those guys were, they were great jazz musicians. Yep. If you could get like uh, somebody that accomplished, I mean, really, really just you know, they, they could play with one hand tied behind their back and one foot. Well, they, they, you know, you give them a thing like the Wanderer and they just went off on it. Yeah, they would, the, the thing that I remember about all those guys, when, you know, I heard them at the Apollo, I'd bring them down to the session to do Run Around Sue or the Wanderer. They, they would encourage us. You know, they were very, uh, they would just encourage us. They weren't, they didn't have attitudes, so they, they helped us. Yeah, but my understanding was that they, they would go, you know, some, some one of the tenor players or the drummer would go and do a session like The Wanderer and never think about it again. They would just do like the most amazing tenor solo you've ever heard, like the one on The Wanderer. And just, you know, it was just, they just would toss it off, leave, go do another session, same thing. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> there was nothing to to think about. They they didn't think about no, it. They, they just, just did, did it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So they, how did you get hooked up with Bob and Gene Schwartz at Laurie Records, I should say? Yeah. Well, uh, I was brought up on the streets in the Bronx, and I when I heard Jimmy Reed, I you know my uncle got me a guitar, and I, I would play on the on the stoops in the Bronx. And there was a songwriter, his name was Pat Noto. And he heard me and he said, you know, I, he said, uh, I'm pitching some songs down in Manhattan. I mind you, I was only 16. So he says, I'd, I'd like to take you down there. So there was this uh, janitor, his name was Willie Green. He was a black guy. Uh, you know, a guy used to like, couldn't I couldn't wait to get out of school to hang out with him because he because <laughs> he, he knew uh, you know I mean he would play John Lee Hooker and he he knew all those right. you know he was steeped in that Lightning Hopkins and all that stuff so he, he said just go down be yourself so I went down to uh, with Pat Noto I think it was was called Mohawk Records at the time they, yeah the, the, they, for the first single it was Mohawk yeah. they they quickly turned they quickly uh, changed the name. But when they heard me, they signed me up immediately. They said, get your parents down here to, you know, to sign off, because I was underage. And we started making records right away, you know. Uh, so, you know, so <laughs> some of that was very good for me, some of it wasn't, but I'll take it. I'll take all of it now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just w had no uh you know the the my, my maturity level I, I was so insecure i i was just doing a lot of stuff i you know they'd say do this and i'd say ah, i can't stand that song you know let's play it with these musicians i can't stand those musicians that's now you know it's terrible i don't want to do that they say well okay you could do one thing you like and do one thing we like and all the things I did were hits. I mean, I, I did I Wonder Why. You know, even when I went to Columbia Records, the same bit. Anyway, I'll talk to, to you about that later. <laughs> yeah, there was this one track. When I went down there, Mohawk Records had this track called The Chosen Few. And this guy, Joe Allegro, had sung a lead on it. But he was like a crooner. And when they heard me, they took his voice off. They said, well, do you want to sing on this? I said, no, I don't want to sing on that. That's, that's like my parents' music, you know? Mm -hmm. But they said, do this for us. And, you know, I just was so young. I said, okay. Uh, so I did it. It was arranged and conducted by, at the time, unbeknownst to me, a guy named Hugo Montenegro, who was like a great arranger and sure. composer and and he and they had this track and uh, you know and that's the way they did things back then they had this big arrangement and they didn't want to throw it away they said please sing on it for us so i did actually it went into the top five in boston and then i went down to american bandstand with it and did it on american bandstand the kids went nuts you know, and a lot of the things I did were at Bell Sound on 8th Avenue. And, uh, right, that was a big studio at the time. 
I don't know what street it was on. Maybe in the 50s. In the 50s, in the 50s yeah. But, it's gone. Uh, they, they tore yeah. it down. Oh, I did a lot of recordings there, a lot of the early recordings. My dreams have all gone astray. Why must it happen this way? Sweet dreams only come true For a chosen few Will I keep hoping in vain Must I know nothing but pain Or will I find the way to Tag tag and tag along the rock. Tag tag and tag along the bop. Tag tag and tag along the 
Dion, how old were you on that record? I was maybe just turned 17. Were you still in school? Uh, I I quit school. I I you know I I got. Off, I got thrown onto this road of music, and I, I just totally invested in it. I quit. I was in junior year. Wow. So you were pretty confident that you were going to spend the rest of your life in rock and roll, right? Yeah, I was like all in. <laughs> this is it. It's the only, uh, you know, I, I, I just, my only salvation at that time, you know. It's a funny thing because, um, you know, uh later on in my life i realized that when i was about 7 years old my you know my father was a great guy and uh, he had wonderful qualities uh you know he'd dive off the city island bridge he'd uh he'd walk <laughs> on a, on his on his hands on the on the tenement edges of the tenement buildings on Cretona Avenue he'd he'd do chins you know like a hundred chins he'd he'd show the he he was like a, a, an artist he'd sculpt he'd paint he but he didn't work <laughs> he had you know so my mother and him like just they didn't drink they didn't smoke they didn't carouse they didn't drink coffee they didn't run around on each other they they weren't bigots never heard a bad word about anybody but my mother was super responsible. My father was super irresponsible. So, how did you survive? How did, how was the money coming in? My mother, my mother had two jobs, so that's where all the argument. But the 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 point I was trying to make is that somewhere when I was like about seven years old, I used to sit around the, the table with all my uncles and my father. My uncles were all like super. You know, they were like. Six four, six three, six. They were all over six feet. They were cops. Belonged to the fire department. They, they were engineers. They were, they were foremans. They were, you know, they, they worked on construction. They were like all had all hard workers. All, and they would put my father down when I was sitting with all these guys, and I must have swore an oath to heaven. I must have vowed an oath. No one's ever gonna treat me like that. I'll punch their freaking lights out, you know. Uh, uh, they're gonna get punched right in the face quick. So I had the, this drive in me that like was insane, you know. So I was walking through walls. I, so that's why I quit school. When I saw that I could get some value or some significance or some worth or people wouldn't talk badly about me, by, you know, I could make records. You know, I could I could do something that you know, this you know, something maybe that would give me some honor. 
or some power or anything. And get you out of the Bronx. You know, at least I didn't want anybody talking bad about me. Right. You know, I, I was crazy. I was like, uh, you know, I always say the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My first commandment was don't say anything bad about me. Don't treat me like a joke. You're going to get a broken nose. <laughs> you know, and I was and I wasn't a tough guy. I'm not a tough guy. I'm a poet. Believe me. Take my word for it. I, I just was in a little I was insane, you know. So what I'm saying is that was the reason that I quit school. I didn't know it then. You know, but this this drive, you know, was I was going with it. Yeah. And it 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 worked for a long time you know some good came out of it but like i said if you don't if you don't overcome some of these things it'll kill you because you can't continue with that kind of uh you can't build your life on a lie if there's a lie in in the foundation of your belief system you're in trouble (laughs) you just can't build your life on it it's going to be it'll come out sideways You'll have problems, right. a lot of problems, right. like I did. When she kissed me, I was born, then she said goodbye. Then I knew right away I was born to cry. Now I'm happy and the joke's on her. Cause I found that place for lovers who wander, yeah, whoa. She took my love, said she's not coming back Thought my world and my sky would all turn to black Now I see the light, I'm wise to her Cause I found that place for lovers who wander, yeah Whoa, whoa, whoa You never know it now, my story can be told with a smiling face. I'm the luckiest guy in a human race. All my loving dreams are gone for her. Cause I found that place for lovers who wander. Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, she took my love, you see. Oh, she doesn't bother me. Yeah, I found that place to be. Yeah. Love I die, die, die. 
You're such a little evil child Yeah, 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 yeah
Pretty ones from the Dion and the Belmonts catalog. What no, a face. no one knows. And we heard Sandy before that, and Little Diane, and we started that little set with uh, Lovers Who Wander, which you wrote, right? Lovers Who Wander, yes, yes, yes. I, I, yeah, I, uh, it's kind of like. Uh, yeah, when she kissed me, I was born, then she said goodbye. You could write a whole book just on that line. I lived on their record for, <laughs> for a while when I was in, in my teenage, teenage years, believe me. You were asking me about the ad-libs, the don let don diddle don let 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 Well, even on Little Diane, I could right. kind of piggyback both of those things. Right. The, uh, we were going down to the Apollo Theater, you know, and we heard, you know, Big Al Sears and, and you know, like uh, Ray Prysock and King Curtis, and they, they blew our minds, man. These guys would come out to the front of the stage with white suits and white shoes and white vests and their gold saxophones, man. they just take the stance and they would... Nah, but 
and we'd run home we'd be on the we'd be on the train man like did you hear that did you uh, do this man the band was doing so all our songs every song we did was like we were trying to copy the horns so ah. so on lovers who won the man's every every time there was an opening i thought i was a sax player <laughs> and, and, and then and then they gave me little diane and i went out and bought a kazoo and yeah and i swore that you know listening to it now it's like horrendous to me i'm like <laughs> what was i thinking you know i thought i was playing like big al sears you know Dude, <laughs> I, I got I got the you know the kazoo and I'm going you know and I, I could you know but I you know it's like crazy you think you in your head you want to be what they're doing but in, but it, even as bad as it was we got hit records yep I got hit records yeah. oh yeah um since you wrote some of those songs or co-wrote some with Ernie Maresca did you actually get royalties from Lori or from anybody or did you get royalties on the records or was it, you know, just you know, here, here's a Cadillac kid, go away? You know, it was creative accounting. Ah. Now that I look back on it, you know, they always had us in the red and, you know, you owe us this, you owe us that, you know. So royalties, no. In fact, when I, uh, you know, when I was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I alluded to, I said, you know, I'm telling you, man, I must have got $75 on the Wanderer. I said, but, you know, uh, but let me tell you this. If you, some, some guys stay angry all their lives. Sure. And they, they you know, like uh, Chuck Berry or Little Richard or, or, who, or Muddy Waters, who, who was ever getting beat by chess records or roulette records. But when, when you're a guy like me, who's come through all these eras, you kind of start stepping back and looking at the full picture. And if you offer any kid on the street, you say, listen, come and record for my company. I'll take care of all the expenses We'll put out all these records on you and we'll give you an international career for 60 years. Would you do it? Where do I sign? Right, exactly. So you have to like look at these companies, you know, somebody wants to say they beat you. Well, yeah, maybe they did, you know. Yeah, maybe it wasn't right. Yeah, maybe I should have got some royalties. But when you pull back from it, you say, hey, they gave me a career, right? You know, and uh, I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I don't, you know, I want to say they, you know, they were saints. They weren't, but who is, you know? Well, none, of, none of those guys were saints. We all know that. Um, did you tour overseas during this during the early sixties? I did. I did a, a little of it, uh, but you know, I was I was <laughs> I, I was never much for. Uh, uh, in fact, I was talking to my wife, Susan. We were at a dinner last night. We were talking about this. I said, you just, I, you know, I just wanted to hang out with you and I wanted to go out for dinner. I, I, I couldn't care less about Europe. But I did do Spain. I did France. I did Italy. I did uh, uh, the UK, Germany. Uh, How I, long have you been married? I've been married 56 years. Wow. I've, I've known my wife 
since uh, we we know each other 65 years so um yeah it's kind of miraculous that we're that we learned how to live together you know it's and yet we, you recorded a song called run around sue <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> and she wasn't <laughs> what a love song yeah. <laughs> i'll say you know uh but i think the song wonderful girl was really about her you know uh run around sue it's just i threw the name in there because eh, it's a long story but you know it, it rhymed you know you, you couldn't use other names uh, it was pretty hard to use the name dorothy or you know <laughs> you had a Gladys. lot of, you had a lot of girls names in records you know we were we played sandy there and uh you know i had seen that name steve brandt as the writer on there you want to tell us about uh, exactly who steve brandt was well steve brandt was uh, I don't know, a publicist kind of guy you know uh uh, but you know, back then, I used to, I used to give half songs to anybody I was hanging out with because it just was kind of like a, a generous thing to do, and it kind of tied you to them and like that, you know. Uh, you know, kind of a crazy thing to do, but I was that's that's the way I was when I was a kid. I didn't knew nothing about publishing. I had no idea until. I heard the story about Lieber and Stoller. They uh, they wrote Hound Dog. And, uh, you know, uh, Big Mama Thornton did it, and they loved it, you know. And and they they loved it. Because they were, like, very, you know, or black music-oriented, you know. Sure. So, so they, you know, when Presley did uh, Hound Dog, they were just outraged. I mean, he, he screwed the whole song up. It's so fast. There's, uh, wow. there's no there's no soul to it. Uh, they were complaining. What the who? What did he do? He, he and then, then they got the first song. royalty. Then check. they got the first royalty check. <laughs> Love it. And they said, hey, "Let's listen to that again." Yeah, you know? no doubt. Maybe there's something we're missing. And then they said, "Who sent us this check?" And somebody said, "The publishing company." And they said, who are they? And they said, so-and-so. And they said, how do you become a publishing company? You know, they're Jewish. I, I didn't know a thing. You know, like, <laughs> a, like my father always used to say, in a complimentary, say, Jews, no. Just listen to them. You know what I mean? So, so like, they started a publishing company. So th that's what made me start thinking, you know. And... Uh, and I've never looked back. You know, I, somebody told me, you know, publishing is your uh, retirement plan. I, who cared about a retirement plan back then? But, but I jumped into it and I, I started a publishing company and started publishing some of this stuff, you know? Which is, it's, it's the reason why I could pay rent without worrying today. You know, I'm like, right. and I eat good. I live like King Farouk because Lieber and Stola, thank you. Now that I love a girl and a ruby is her name Hear me talking now This girl don't love me but I love her just the same What I say oh. Whoa, oh, 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 ruby, ruby Sometimes I'm each 
You want to know? I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember that record. God. That record didn't come out. That that was taken from the film Ten Girls Ago. I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame talking about the Winter Dance Party because on the 50th anniversary of that fatal plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame went out to the, uh, the Clear Lake. Uh, Clear Lake Surf Ballroom, and they had a symposium, and they 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 came to they called me. They said nothing makes sense. You got to tell us your story. So they came down to my house. They put a camera in my house. They, they just did. So I went from beginning to end. No one's ever asked me to actually chronologically or you know just the continuity of the story. You know, you go on a talk show, you got like three minutes. Right. So I, I, I never told anybody the story or even when it happened, you know, I'm an Italian guy from the Bronx. You don't, you don't go out and like capitalize on somebody dying or telling stories. Or, you know, it was like, leave me alone. 
you know, you grieve privately. Right. You know, I was 19 years old. So anyway, uh, I'm telling the, uh, you know, we went to the, you know, once I filmed this, it, it's online. It's called a True Buddy Holly story or something like that. And and uh, I was up at the, they premiered it at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Dave Marsh interviewed me. And during the interview, he says to me, Dion, you're the only guy from the 50s who has stayed relevant and creative. So it sounded absurd to me. I said, no, it can't be. So I said, what about Roy Orbison? He said, no, he became part of it, but he, he's, no. I said, what about this guy? And he started proving to me that I'm the only guy still writing and, and relevant and still f feel relevant. Otherwise, I wouldn't do an album. Mm -hmm. And he, so he's, he's, you know, so he convinces me. So I go home and I'm telling my wife, Sue, I said, Sue, you know what Dave Marsh said? He said, I'm the only guy who's still relevant and creative from the 50s. So she says, well, what are you going to do about it? So why don't you do an album? So I, I started making these blues albums. You know, I, right. I did like a trilogy of, of blues albums yeah. and stuff. But, uh, you know, but, but it's true in a way. If I, I mean, not comparing or anything, but I do feel relevant. I still feel creative. Very, more so now. Great. <laughs> you know. And you're not sounding like anybody else in any in any era or decade. You never sounded like anybody else. You always sounded like Dion. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. When I I never considered myself a songwriter. I never considered. I I didn't even want to sing because I couldn't hold notes. You know, like singers to me hold notes like ah, oh, 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 you know. Like, what really? You, you know, didn't consider so, yourself a singer. But wow. today I would say, I would really say I'm a great singer, but as far as a great voice, that's Pavarotti or that's, you know, somebody else. It's not me. Because mm. if you have a great voice, you can't sing in rock and roll. Forget about it. You got to go into pop music. Oh, right? I see. So that's guys who sing. But me, I'm a rhythm singer. I consider myself a rhythm singer. You give me a beat. And I could sing. Just give me a beat. And I'm, so I could get off notes. I developed this without even, it was like intuitive or like just instinct because I couldn't hold notes. So I had to get off of them. So I, I get off of them real quick, you know. And I, so I don't know how I do that. But I started analyzing it now because people, you know, would say stuff about me. And I started looking. I said, you know, yeah, I, I started. Because I loved Hank Williams. He had no vibrato at all. Nope. You know, he would sing, uh, uh, you know, uh, I left my home down on the rural route. Wow. Totally flat. Flat, not one quiver in his voice. And I thought, this is it. This is it. And then I heard Jimmy Reed, and he went, I got me running. And he, he didn't hold notes like, got me running. You know, get <laughs> Thank out God of here. for that. You know, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. So, you know, to me, that reminded me, uh, the you know, a lot of vibrato reminded me of the Italian weddings I went to when I was a kid. Mm. And I didn't want to sing like those guys. Right. So. But your built-in attitude that nobody else had. Well, it's a funny thing, the things you do, like, I don't know, on instinct. 
You know, like uh, you played this song, Tag Along, and no one knows. So I'm singing, Tag Along, Tag, but I didn't talk like that. I came from the Bronx. I said, Tag Along. Right. You can't sing, Tag Along. <laughs> you got to tag, or, or no one knows what I go through, through. Ernie Maresca, who wrote the song, he sang, he kept his accent when he sang. He said, no one knows what I go true <laughs> and the tears I cry for you. I mean, he sang the way he spoke. It was weird, but I just, I guess I was listening to Hank Williams. I was listening to Jimmy Reed. So I, I sang differently than I spoke, you know. Uh, so those are some of the things kind of you do on instinct, you know. And you listen to your records and it's not as though you're interpreting a song it's like you're singing what your what your what the words are what the lyrics are and what the music represents it sounds like the real deal yeah i don't that's something that i didn't give much thought to i i just did it you know we were doing stuff on instinct you know i wasn't like painting by numbers by no means i was mm -hmm. like you know i i just digested stuff like uh like if you listen to the song Born to Cry, which I wrote when I was about 16, yeah. I was walking in Pelham Bay and I was at the synagogue, past the synagogue, and I heard this cantor. He was doing all this cantering. And I went in there, I had like a tank top on, and I'm like, whoa, what's this guy doing? And uh, I met Cantor Rosenblatt, Henry Rosenblatt. And he brought me in the back. And he said, you're interested in this? And he played me some music that his father did, Usula Rosenblatt, who you could Google. He's on YouTube. He's like famous. He was in the original Al Jolson story, you know. Wow. Uh, I forget the name of it, but I think it was called The Jazz Singer. Jazz Singer, yeah. And he, he's actually in it. And, uh, but what I'm saying is I went home and I wrote Born to Cry, which I'm cantering in. Wow. It's like Jewish rock and roll. It's fusion. <laughs> <laughs> but, you wow. know, we didn't have, we didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't have the internet. I was just, whatever I absorbed, I kind of like, it came out. Just take, Walking down take, the street. Take, take it from everywhere. Yeah. yeah. You just, you know, you hear something and you go with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something, you know, I was getting ideas from all over, you know. And New York, it's just so full and vibrant and, you know, it sounds. You played Ruby Baby and Drip Drop right. that Lieber and Stoller wrote. And that's a good example of some of the stuff I was listening to as a kid. Mm -hmm. I was listening to uh, John Lee Hooker. And, you know, John Lee Hooker would stomp on the floor. You know, yeah, I know. Hey, be in the boogie. I come home. I look at the boogie. You know, and he'd be like that. And I'd say, so you say, hey, we're doing Ruby Baby and Drip Drop tomorrow. Don't wear sneakers. Wear your <laughs> shoes. You know, wear your shoes. We're going to stomp. 
man. We're going to stomp on a floor. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how, you know, we didn't use drums. Yeah, yeah. We used, uh, we just stomped, you know, and that's, that's what I had in my head, you know, so. So Dion, were you a record uh, collector when you were young? I mean, where'd you go for your records? I, I went up to Fordham Road, uh, Cousin Records, Lou Cicchetti owned it, became friends with him at at 10 years old. Wow. Because I heard Hank Williams do Honky Tonk Blues, and I was never the same. I was never the same. I heard that song. It, it changed my life, changed my life. Uh, I ran up to Fordham Road. I said, I heard Honky Tonk Blues. Who sang that? You know, it was, I kind of dialed it in on my radio there was a there was a country station that came out of newark new jersey with don larkin who was a dj he was like uh much older than me and he was in the army and he got hooked up got hooked on a dj who got hooked on country music and he come out of newark and i used to run home from school to hear this show and i heard honky tonk blues and and lou Cicchetti said that's hank williams I said, get me that record. And he said, you like him? I said, yeah, get me, what, what else did he do? And man, by the time I was like about 12 years old, I had like 40 Hank Williams singles. You know, wow. I was like, I was like a maniac. I, was, <laughs> I, I used to get out on the, on the streets of New York, like I was telling Paul Simon the other day we had lunch. I said, man, I used to tell my friends about jambalaya and honky tonk blues. I was they they didn't know what honky tonk was. They didn't know what jambalaya was. I said, neither did I. I didn't know what the hell I was singing. I didn't know what jambalaya was, but it sounded so good coming out of my mouth. And uh, Paul said, you know, he said, you know, for Elvis Presley who lived in Memphis, that wasn't a stretch, but for a guy from the Bronx. That's a stretch. That's a big stretch, yeah. <laughs> so I, sure I, I said, you know, no, I, I went. I used to run out to the, the guys on the corner, and uh, I, I used to say, man, I heard a guy rhyme was with buzz. Jimmy Rogers, this guitar player who's playing with Muddy Waters, he wrote a song called You're the One. He says, you're the one who really gives me a buzz. I didn't think I could last much longer, but it shows you just how wrong I was. <laughs> he rhymed was with buzz. <laughs> and they'd look at me and go, get out of here. What, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, don't you understand? He rhymed was with buzz. And they'd walk away from they They were like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? To me, I was enthralled. Yeah, you'd come on at something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you get it? Yeah. <laughs> no, they didn't get it. Wow. You know that feeling, no pain that we heard uh, came out on a Spanish 45 not that long ago, uh, dubbed from a clip uh, from the movie, Ten Lost Girls, that you were in? Ten Girls Ago, yeah. Oh, Ten Girls Ago. That's the title of it? Yeah. And can you recall exactly what was going on there nobody can find the film including the the canadian film company that no, uh, knows everything they can't find it i do have clips i'll send you the clips well there's a clip that you just played but yeah. the, the film never came out i see the film which had three great old his you know just the 
cream of the crop, Burt Lahr, uh, Eddie Foy Jr., and Buster Keaton. He was in silent movies, this yeah. guy. But they were real old at the time, very aged. And uh, the whole movie revolved around these two dogs, these two... Uh, what are those long dogs? The Dashman? Yeah, Dachshund. So, you know, one was a male, one was a boy. And then at the end of the movie, they film all this stuff and they realize the whole plot revolved around one dog knocking the other dog up and there were two males there. Oh, <laughs> Through my. the whole movie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a plot. <laughs> That's pretty well, twisted. Well, you know, it was... It, you know, it yeah. was subtle and, and implied and the whole thing was wow but basically that was the the movie yeah all right and they couldn't put it out because they had these two male dogs they wanted to reshoots the scenes and they never got them reshot wow. they ran out of money and all we shot it up in canada it was a ball they had uh uh jennifer billingsley who i don't know what happened to her but uh and uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun making it. You know, go, going to work with these three guys every day, I was like taken by them. They were so funny. Wow. They were so funny. Wow. And then you ended up producing uh, Feeling No Pain, that yeah. song from the movie, right. uh, for uh, the Del Satins. Yeah. And yeah. That, um, it also turned out well. The gypsy woman told my mother before I was born You got a boy child coming He's gonna be a son of a gun He gonna make pretty woman He gonna make him jump and shout And when the world can know Oh, what it's all about Lord, I'm here Oh, yeah Everybody knows I'm here Oh, Lord Cause I'm a hoochie-coochie man Everybody knows I'm here oh. I got a black cat's bone I got a mojo too I got the John Kangaroo, baby I'm gonna mess with you I'm gonna make you pretty girls Lead me by my hand And then the world will know Oh, I'm the hoochie-coochie man Lord, I'm here Oh, everybody knows I'm here Oh, yeah Call on the hoochie-coochie man Everybody knows I'm here Seventh hour, and on the seventh day, and on the seventh month, seven doctors say he was born for good luck, and that you're gonna see. I got seven hundred dollars, baby. Don't you mess with me, Lord. I'm here. Oh yeah, everybody knows I'm here right now. 
So that was the B side of what turned out to probably be your biggest hit ever, right? Abraham Martin and John was was. I don't know if that was the biggest hit ever, but when uh, Bobby Kennedy was uh, assassinated, uh, just the country was was such a restless time in this country, and that song just came out of sheer frustration. I, my friend uh, uh, Dick Holla kind of put it together, but it, it was kind of a rinky-tink kind of gospel thing, and I, I kind of I had my gut string guitar, and I kind of put a, like a melody to it that was, uh, to me, more engaging. So I, I put it together, and and I hadn't I didn't have a record contract at the time. It was like nineteen sixty eight. I had moved down to Florida. I was just I I kind of turned my life around because uh Frankie Lyman had died in nineteen sixty eight and we used to hang out together. We were friends. In fact I brought him up to the house. My mother made him some spaghetti in the day. <laughs> but when he died I was like uh I was like just, I don't know. It hit me hard, and I started thinking about my own life. I just got this little girl born to me, my first daughter, Tane, and uh, uh, I just started taking inventory, and I said, I got to do something with my life, because we used to take drugs together, and, you know, we were like... We were running together, you know, running the streets together. 68 was a pretty low point in your life, I would imagine. Yeah, it was the lowest. The, mo the darkest, emotional, deepest, most frustrating time of my life. Irritable, restless, discontent, depressed, crazy, blaming everybody for everything. I was just, just the lowest. You got it. The lowest point of my life. And uh, this is going to sound crazy. But uh, I went to, I went to a, a kind of spiritual 12-step program, a, a spiritual-based 12-step program. And they told me, you better, you better ask God for help or whatever you, you know, something. Because you, you can't fix a, a broken mind with a broken mind. And your mind is broken. So I got on my knees one night. Uh, it was April 1st, 1968. I haven't had a drug or a drink since. So, I mean, God just removed the obsession, the, the craziness, and I, I've never been the same. Uh, who knew, you know, I, I, and, but my whole life turned around uh, there. And my kids, I have three daughters, they've never seen me drink or drug. They've seen me crazy, but not drinking or drug. <laughs> when did you, you had a, um, you, were, you went to Columbia after Lori, when did your Columbia contract come up? It didn't. I quit. Uh, they, I had, I recorded an album called Kickin' Child, which uh, Norton Records put out. Finally. Miriam, yeah, finally. <laughs> 45 uh, years after yeah, the Yeah, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, yeah, it just came out. So it, it was kind of like a lost album in the back. But they were paying me $100,000 a year, whether I recorded or not. Nice. And I, I just, uh, you know, that was a, that was a huge, uh, I won bigger than anybody in my family. I, I come from a family where my uncles would work for four years and then 
fix up the kitchen. Then they work for another four years and they would fix up the, you know, the living room. Right. And that, that's the way people did it, you know, and they, they did things on layaway, you know, they'd get a couch and they'd work and they, and just, you know, and that's the way it was. But a hundred grand a year must have seemed like the moon to them. Oh, it was crazy. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but back then it must have been like $20 million. Yeah, it was like, yeah. so I'm in the middle of this and I was so headstrong and, Music was everything. It was it was like the center of my life, you know, to, to to be that it was like a bit of salvation for me. So when they weren't on board with what I was doing, I just left. I said, listen, I'm out of here. Goodbye. You don't want to really, goodbye. I don't care about your money, your contract. So my manager came to me, says, you don't mind if I get my my interest on it i said no get whatever you want but i'm out of here i'm leaving so i gave it up i just and i i went i went back to the apartment i told my wife i said i have integrity and she said you know what you got insanity <laughs> so so uh you know that's where that was and i, I was crazy i was using drugs i i you know i uh i, I don't know i just i was very impulsive and living in a delusion i don't know but but when i heard the music i said oh my god in the middle of all that craziness this is good mm. so i don't know how that happened but you know uh it was better than i ever thought you know i i i attached that album to this crazy time in my life but when i heard it when Norton Records put it out a few years ago, I was driving across Florida and I listened to it and I went, oh my God, this stuff is good. Yeah, but people didn't want to hear that from you. They wanted to hear the wanderer and run around Sue and you were playing the In blues. In the day, you mean. Yeah. I don't know what they wanted to hear. Or that's, I, what, or that's what Columbia thought anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was... I don't know. I had... You know, I was up at Columbia Records. They signed me because I had gold records on the wall. I made The Wanderer. I made Runaround Sue. So they gave me this five-year contract guaranteed $100,000 a year. And I started out with Ruby Baby. I did Donna the Prima Donna. I did Drip Drop. I'm sitting there in Bob Mercy's office one of the arranger producers, so-called. I mean, in name, he didn't produce those right. records. He wouldn't know what to do if his life depended on it. You know, he, he was a great arranger. Don't get, he was like Nelson Riddle. Mm -hmm. The guy was tremendously talented for a big band. Right. And I learned a lot from him. But I would produce the record. He would actually walk out of the sessions because he, he didn't know what I was doing. So I was sitting on a piano stool with Aretha Franklin because they had her up there and they were giving both of us Al Jolson songs. Oh, dear. I oh, did, man. on the Ruby Baby album, you could look on I did Mammy, I did, I don't know what I did on that. Good but, Lord. But the, the thinking was, you do one song for us and you can do the other. Mm. You do one, we'll do one. Mm. So if you look at the Ruby Baby album or the Donna the Prima Donna album, it's like one for them, one for me. 
You know, that's what that was all about. It was crazy uh, for me. So, but I'm sitting there singing with Aretha Franklin. She, young girl, young at the time. And they had know. no idea what to do with her no, either. No, yeah. they had no idea. No, they were giving her Al Jolson songs. Right. I mean, so four feet from us is John Hammond's office right across the hall. And, uh, you know, we, we did a song, and, and he said, Dion, he said, come in here. So I, I walk into his office, and he said, you know, you have a flair for the blues. I said, yeah, I said, I like Jimmy Reed, you know, and I like, you know, I never talked to Hammond. He said, and he pulled out the album, Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues mm-hmm. Singers. He said, this album sold 25,000 albums, word of mouth. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm thinking in my head, you know, I, I just sold 30 million records. What, the, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, you know, they signed me. You know, you're talking about 25,000 albums. So he starts playing me. He played me Preaching Blues and Crossroads. This was like 1961. I said, oh, my God. What, you know, I heard something in that. I got so excited listening to this stuff. So he gave me a, an armful of records, Furry Lewis. Uh, he gave me uh, Leroy. Sunhouse, probably. Carr, Sunhouse. You yeah. know, all these guys, Lightning Hopkins. Right. So I go home, Bill Big Brunzi. I'm like, uh, I got so hung up on this stuff. It, it, that's when I, I recorded a lot of blue stuff, and I did uh, Kicking Child. Mm. And uh, I, I guess it had a little different sound to them i was just developing i was like evolving i i wasn't thinking i gotta make a certain thing i was you know i i was doing like drip drop ruby bait to me those were like the closest to the blues things that i heard i i wasn't aware this stuff this was like the real deal so those are both lieber and the stoller songs too yeah but they were i don't know what what they were listening to i had no idea i never asked them but uh jerry lieber years later even wrote me a a letter that i'll show you he says oh no when i i did an album called bronx and blue in two days all the songs i grew up with and it was up for a grammy so i sent it to, to to jerry lieber and mike stoller and I said, you guys always said I was the best white blues singer you ever heard. And he crossed out white, and he sent me back the letter. And he, <laughs> and he, and he put his name by it. He said, That's Jerry great. Lieber, and he crossed out white. I said, oh, you, it's, it's a cute letter. For me, it's like a very, you know, heart kind of thing from mm-hmm. Jerry Lieber. But uh, I don't know. You know, uh, I never looked at... Um, you know, Buddy Holly told me a long time ago, he said, Dion, I don't know how to succeed, but I know how to fail. You just try to please everybody. Mm. And I, I thought, well, if he didn't tell me that, I probably wouldn't did half the stuff I did because, uh, I mean, I think that was good advice, you know? Yeah, yeah for sure. We also heard uh, one of the songs you did. I think you did two albums with Phil Spector, and we played uh, Born to Be With You. Which also your good friend, I think your good friend, Dave Edmonds, also recorded around the same time. 
Made one album with Spectre. We didn't even finish it. Oh, it was the only one. I thought yeah, born, yeah, born to uh, be with you. Didn't, that was didn't get tr- along with him, did you? <laughs> well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it wasn't easy, but I, I tell you, I learned something. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot because what I learned is when you really want to talk to somebody, don't ever challenge them in a room full of people or with anybody in it. Mm. Call them into another room alone and look them straight in the eye and tell them what you want to tell them. Mm. Like, then you don't get no yelling, you, don't get, you get very little resistance, you get, people will hear you. So, and that's what I did with Spectre. And I learned it from Nino Temple, he, the, the sax player who was Spectre's roommate in college. He said, Dion, if you want to talk to him, call him out. Don't, don't mention it in a room, in the, in the, in the control room, because Sonny and Cher was there, Springsteen, L- Little Steven, Clement, you know, Clarence Clemens. And, you know, he was like the... It was, you know the room is full of people. Don't mention it. You're going to be in a. You know you're going to get. You're going to you're going to get a lot of resistance, and he's got to win. Right. But if you get him in the room across the hall, so I would go, Phil, got to talk to you. And he go, No, don't worry. I know what you're talking. I, Phil, I got to talk to you. And he'd come out, and I get him in the room across the hall. I say, Phil, listen, I love you, man. You know I want to walk out of here feeling like a man. You know, I want to be treated like I treat you. I love you. I said, you know, don't make me uncomfortable. You know, he, I, I know, I know, I get it, I get it. And I said, listen, I, I told him, you know, I don't want to say it on the air, but I said, I got to walk out of here with my balls. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. I said, I can't, you know. I'm like, so he would, you know, after I talked to him, he'd get in the control room, he'd say, okay, now, all you assholes and Dion. So, <laughs> wow. Great story. So, so, you know, but, but uh, you know, he's like all of us. It's nothing, no different, you know. Got a got hundred forms of fear driving you, you know. Dion, going back to when you were recording the tracks that, uh, that never came out on uh, until years later with Kick and Child, you were at Columbia the same time as Bob Dylan was, and there's kind of a mutual appreciation society there. Can you talk to us a little bit about what was going on? Well, that, that was a real interesting time for me. First of all, I had you know some of the biggest hits I've ever had. Out on, it was for me 1963. I was at the top of my profession, right. and I must have made a couple of million dollars. Here I am, from a kid from the Bronx. I was doing pretty good, you know. I was talking to... Where were you living? Well, I was living on 63rd Street and 3rd. Mm. My manager now lives in that building. I think it's 205. Yeah, 1963 was... uh, I was at the top of my profession. Uh, I had recorded Runaround Sue, The Wanderer. I mean, Teenager in Love. I Wonder Why. Ruby Baby. I I had like... 12 records that were like right in a row yeah it's, it's like bowling a, a perfect game right. you know I, I was really blessed I, I don't know it was a great time you know uh, uh, 
I think the business was easier. I didn't know how many people, I didn't, I didn't think I was in competition with anybody. I just was doing what I do. And uh, Tom Wilson, you know, like I said, Bob Mercy, who was producing me, was was very frustrated when I started playing him a lot of this blues stuff and that I was hearing from John Hammond. And, you know, I was, <laughs> I got into all this blues stuff. I, I was just having a ball with it, you know, because it was really what was in the center of my soul in a way, you know? It was like, it was like what everything grew out of, you know? Even Runaround Sue is a cleverly disguised blues song or something, you know? So I'm, I'm like in the middle of getting very frustrated at the time with Bob Mercy and Tom Wilson, a, a, a jazz producer, I think he got into the business in maybe 1955, he was telling me, and, and I don't know, I, I think he was producing on some jazz labels. Not that he was terribly like a, a great musician. He wasn't really a nice, educated guy. I mean, he was just just a very like statuesque, very beautiful, you know, a gentleman, a really, uh, um, uh, I really liked him. So we started talking about music. He had come up to finish uh, Bob Dylan's uh, Freewheeling album because I think John Hammond was having a little difficulty finishing it with it. I don't know what the, what the problem was, but Wilson took over, Tom Wilson. And we would find ourselves, you know, having lunch and talking about this stuff. Meanwhile, Clive Davis is writing my checks. He was a young lawyer. Right. So... So, you know, I'm talking to uh, Tom Wilson and, you know, we're talking about Bob Dylan. I had been to some of his sessions. I really liked what his whole, you know, it just looked like somebody let him out of a cage or something. It was great. The stuff was great. So I start, I was like really turned on. I was like, Tom, you know, this guy is like, wow. You know, we, we started talking. I said, and in one conversation with him, I said, you know, I said, the animals... Did House of the Rising Sun? They did it like a, you know, more of a rock song than a, than a folk song. So, uh, I said maybe uh, you know maybe Dylan would be interested in in doing something with some musicians, you know, bass, drums, guitar, you know, like. Uh, I, I said maybe I'll try something like that. But I, I know he's a. It, I felt like he was a purist. He would never go for that, but. You know, I was just talking. So about two weeks later, this is like 1964, I think. Uh, Tom Wilson says uh, to me, it was like in December. I know it was cold because we went down to Studio, C, I think it was Studio C downtown in the 30s or something. 30th Street, yeah. So he said, I got some musicians coming in. I'm going to try to put them on. Dylan's out on the West Coast. Maybe you could, uh, you know, just want you to hear what's going, you know, hear it. Mm. Sit there with me and listen. I said, yeah, I'm not. So we went down there. And I'm sitting in the uh, control room with Tom Wilson. And they got like Charlie Smalls on piano, Bobby Gregg on drums. You know, a lot, a lot of the guys I played with, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, they, they start, I don't know what they were playing. I forget the songs, you know, that he, he pulled up to have uh, them play.
play on that Dylan had already done. You know, they, he just dubbed them in to let Dylan hear them. Right. And next thing I know, they're doing, you know, I thought Dylan's going to, you know, he, he hears this, he's going to, you know, explode. I thought he was like, you know, a purist or something. I didn't know. You know, I, 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 I knew whatever he was doing was off the charts great. I mean, we all did. Uh, never thought he would go, but it was like maybe a month or two later, they were in the studio with a big band. You know, I mean, a big band, you know. Yeah. Rock musicians. You know, they had Al Cooper on uh, organ, who was a, a songwriter right, right across the street It's at uh, 1650. Mm. And, uh, you know, they're doing, you know... Uh, I don't know what album, bringing her all back home yeah, or something. Yeah, it would have been. So, you know, uh, I was like, wow, he went for it. And I was at a lot, you know, sitting there with Hammond and, and Tom Wilson for a lot of that stuff in the control room. And yet, I mean, right after that, Tom Wilson produced the Kickin' Child album mm -hmm. that uh, Marion Lena put out on... Uh, uh, Norton Records, right here. <laughs> you know the deal. Famous. She found it. She found it in the back room. She asked them. I don't know how you found it. It was in the back room with all the the sheets and the, it was intact. So they uh, they released it. Too bad this isn't TV because she's really blushing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that was like. Uh, I gotta say, after all those years, that was a a nice surprise. I bet it was. A lot, a lot of, it was a nice surprise for those of us who heard it. It too. was a gift to me. I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. It was like uh, finding a little treasure, yeah. you know, that uh, would have been gone. That you, you know, like a memory, a, a great. Uh, and I didn't know the stuff was that good. Mm. Like knowing I won't go back there. I I died when I heard the. The bridge in that, I said, man, I'm good. <laughs> I was like, I was like impressed with myself. We started talking about um, Abraham, Martin, and John, but we were actually wanting to talk about the great, great flip side, Daddy Roland, and you were going to tell us about the recording there in in Florida uh, when uh, it was recorded at a studio that was near a. Bowling alley, I think you said. Uh, yeah, it was in the back of a bowling alley. Yeah. And were the the percussion on there was done by some fellows that were just hanging around the alleyway? You know, what happened is I was traveling and I was frustrated and I just had gotten off drugs and I was very lonely on the road and I was... I was hurt. I was like just longing to be with Susan. I wrote the song called Daddy Roland. You're going to have your sweet loving Daddy Roland in your arms. To me, it was a love song. Now I listen to it and I'm thinking, was there something else going on in my head? Because it sounds like kind of like, you know, even when I was talking to Lou Reed, he said, it's funny how people, you know, interpret your songs you're writing about a plane and they think you're writing about getting high you know and you know he was he was because i sang on one of his songs and he was saying you know people misinterpret this song and i said yeah it's like daddy ryan and he was we were talking about it and i said but you could take it up both ways it's like a 
it's definitely you listen to it and you think the guy is longing to put drugs in himself you know shoot up and yet to me it was a love song you know at the time so uh, that's where daddy rolling so i decided to do it with my cousin tony i said come on we'll, we'll go over to the dukoff studios there's a little studio in back of the bowling alley here on seventh avenue so was that in miami yeah no yeah north miami okay so we go there and I, there was a bunch of Haitian guys there and they came into the studio and they were banging on boxes and I, I had this riff that I had on the guitar and and we just did it. We just did it. It's like, it's a drone. It's like in, I think the thing goes from G to D, G to D. It's like, that's it. It stays in a, in a in almost like in one key, you know, one chord. But uh, so when when Laurie Records said, you know, we need a backside, I said, I got a backside. I, I did a song down the street at Dukoff's studio. It It is so different than Abraham Martin. And you couldn't get two songs. That's right. So different from each other. It's crazy. So uh, one is so arranged and one is so, one is produced and one is, well, not me. I'm an expressionist. I don't. I always sing things differently. But uh, I would say Daddy Roland is a song of expression, and Abraham Martin and John is almost produced. You know, it's two different approaches. They're both good. I mean, Daddy Roland. It sort of got lost because of the hit A side. Right. And there's people I've uh, I've played it for, and they're like, "Oh my God, where do I get that record?" <laughs> It's wow. on the flip of Abraham, Martin, and John. It's just so different from anything else that you did or anybody else did. I think you really kind mm. of uh, it comes invented out, something right then and there, like you invented many other different signs. Well, it, it comes out of listening to Robert Johnson and all those uh, records oh. that uh, that Bob uh, that John Hammond uh, placed in my arms in the early 60s and you know I had gone down to the village I bought a few finger picks and I was like listening to that stuff I was listening to you know Sonny and Brownie McGee and I was listening to Lightning Hopkins at the Gaslight and I was listening you know to all the blues guys uh, Mississippi John Hurt uh, uh, that were coming to town and uh playing they were you know then i met skip james oh my god you know they were the guys who invented this stuff a lot of people don't know they're the early fathers of of american roots music sure you know you were talking about uh being friends with frankie lyman and running with him and so on what did you think of uh of the teenagers and of the vocal groups that were going on in that same period of time that that you were really topping the charts yourself. I, you know, I was I was a kid raised on the streets of the Bronx, you know, in my mid-teens, 15, 16 years old. I'm in the candy store. I'm listening to the, the cleft tones. Diddle, 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 diddle. Yeah. yeah. You know, or dom, 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 d
or Daddy's Home, or you know the Dubs and the the Cadillacs and they, you know, this was. I would sit with the girls and the guys. We'd wear out these records on the jukebox. Uh, uh, it was teenage music. Uh, we never had that. You know, we never had an identity. This was our identity. So, uh, yeah, they were part of uh, my early, uh, you know, a lot of it was blues. And it had a baby. She don't dance no more. You know, a lot of it was blues. You know, like um, Lloyd Price. You Lordy, 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 Miss Claudy. You know, so I, it was, it, it all, for me, uh, it was, uh, it wasn't either or. It was all kind of enmeshed. And uh, I, it, you know, it, to me, it, it belonged together. It was almost, you know, born out of the same, claw, you know, ground, in a sense. So, uh, came from the same place. Yeah, absolutely. It seems we stood and talked like this before we looked at each other
into this because of the tremolo, and now I'm playing it without the tremolo. <laughs> okay. That was both diddly. Thanks a lot, man, for, for spending this afternoon with us. It was great, great being with you guys. A lot of fun. Thank you for having me.